We all know there are times when you don't have many choices in who you work with, like when a pipe bursts and you need a plumber right now. But when it comes to your mental health, you should have choices so you don't get stuck with a therapist who can't remember what you tell them every week. To find a good therapist for you, try ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book hundreds of types of doctors, including thousands of mental health providers. We're talking about therapists, psychologists, and psychiatrists. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare hundreds of types of patient-reviewed in-network doctors, including mental health providers, and instantly book appointments with them online. The typical wait time to see a mental health provider booked on ZocDoc is just four days. That's it. You can even score same-day appointments, either online or in person. I use this, and you should too. Go to ZocDoc.com stronger and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated therapist, psychiatrist, or psychologist today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash stronger. ZocDoc.com slash stronger. Welcome to Mentally Stronger, the show that will help you develop the mental strength you need to reach your greatest potential, no matter what life throws your way. I'm Amy Morin, a psychotherapist, mental strength trainer, and an international best-selling author of five books on mental strength. Every Monday, I introduce you to a guest whose story and expertise can inspire you to think, feel, and do your best in life. And the fun part is, we record it all from a sailboat in the Florida Keys. Now, let's dive into today's episode. What if I told you that eating salami can cause depression? Boosting your vitamin D intake could reduce your anxiety. And eating blueberries could help you cope better with PTSD. Most of us know that the food that we eat impacts our physical health, but your diet also has a major impact on your mental health. Studies have shown your diet can affect mental health conditions ranging from ADHD and depression to anxiety, sleep disorders, OCD, and more. But you don't have to have a diagnosable mental health condition to benefit from changing your diet. The foods you eat can boost your mood and help you handle stress better too. Here to help us learn more is Dr. Uma Naidu. She's a Harvard-trained psychiatrist, a nutritionist, and a professional chef. She combined her love of nutrition with her interest in mental health, and she teaches her patients how to improve their mental health by changing the foods they eat. She's now the author of a best-selling book called This Is Your Brain on Food. Some of the things she talks about today are how food affects our brains, how to overcome the biggest barriers to changing your diet, and the foods you should be consuming to grow mentally stronger. Make sure to stick around until the end of the show for the therapist take. It's the part of the show where I'll break down Dr. Nadu's mental strength building strategies and share how you can apply them to your own life. So here's Dr. Uma Nadu on how to eat to improve your mental health. Thank you so much for joining us on Mentally Stronger. Thanks so much, Amy. So aligned with how I feel about the world and my work. So thank you for having me. So I know most people, when they go to see a psychiatrist, are expecting to get medication for their anxiety or for their depression. But you have a special set of skills that I don't think a lot of psychiatrists do. In addition to being a psychiatrist, you happen to also be a nutritionist. But I didn't know your backstory until I read the introduction of your book about how you've really learned from a personal level how important it is to 
take nutrition into consideration uh, and applied it to your own life. Do you mind sharing a little bit about your personal story? Sure. Um, I, I, you know, the first part of my life, I always grew up around food, love, family, uh, and science, a lot of doctors and, and Ayurvedic medicine as well. But, um, Later in my life, as the my clinical work was really taking off and I was enjoying my work in nutritional and metabolic psychiatry, I was unexpectedly diagnosed with breast cancer. And it took, really took me by surprise because other than stress, which is, of course, a huge factor, everything else was going well. And so I was particularly taken aback emotionally. And, you know, the interesting thing about having uh, being blessed by having access to the excellent medical care is it happens very fast. And it's almost as though my emotions hadn't caught up on the day of my first chemotherapy treatment, where, of course, I knew all the side effects of the medications. I found myself really anxious and um, I was kind of, you know, standing in my kitchen, making my um, morning ritual golden charge my grandmother taught me. And I was thinking to myself, you know, I, I have to find a way to manage my anxiety because, you know, I'm, I, I, I know the side effects, but there has to be a better way forward. And literally, almost very dramatically, or melodramatically, as the you know, my electric kettle switched off, I thought, well, this is weird. You know, every day I talk about talk to people about how they can manage their depression, manage their anxiety. You know, I can up how I'm eating. I can improve that. I can change that. I can lean more into it. And I made not only a mindset shift in that moment. I made a very determined effort to increase everything around every nutrient, every level of hydration that I could do. And what I found is that it made a massive difference. Um, I would take um, take lunch every week for chemotherapy because the hospital snacks, is, as much as they provided food, they were not healthy. And uh, my doctors asked me every single week, you know, what are you eating? <laughs> what is your brain? Because you're tolerating the side effects so well. And that was the upside, is that I tolerated chemotherapy very well, um, and I had very, very few side effects. So I didn't expect to become the blueprint of the work that I do today. And I'm grateful that I did, because it taught me the humility of being on the other side of a prescription pad and in, in medical interventions, but also that there are more things that were within my power to decide and to do. And you're doing well now? I'm doing much better now. Thank you. Absolutely. Before you got diagnosed with cancer, how much did you incorporate nutrition into your practice? I was already incorporating it. So I had started with a, with a definite interest in really learning more and doing more. And part of it was early on in my career, uh, a patient yelled at me. And, you know, I was a very junior resident, learning to prescribe medications and, you know, trying to do everything right. And he yelled at me. And I I guess in some ways I in instinctively looked at what he had in his hand in this massive cup of Dunkin' Donuts coffee, famous in Boston, of course. And I said, you know, to, you know, I understand that you're upset. We're going to look at that right now. But, of course, I knew from all the data on the computer that we hadn't caused him to gain weight. He had been overweight when he came to see us. So it wasn't the two weeks of Prozac. But um, he told me, well, I put this and I put that. When I calculated it, it was more than a quarter cup of ultra-processed creamer and eight teaspoons of sugar. And when I showed him that those were empty calories he was consuming before he even ate his breakfast, you know, it was almost as though the, the, the light bulb went off for him. And he was so 
immediately engaged in, okay, now we found something that I can change. What can I do? And we grew to have a therapeutic relationship that was very uh, helpful for both of us. I learned that he didn't have to have a high dose of medication. He helped, he followed the interventions I gave him. So I naturally sort of fell into it. And then I began to really dive deep into the research. Um, so I had been doing it for some time when I was diagnosed. Um, but, you know, there's a very humbling experience when you are a prescriber and you always on the other side of a, uh, a virtual or physical prescription pad and should be given the medication. Um, so I think that, that was a great learning experience for me too. What's your, uh, I guess, what's the response from patients who come to your office and learn that not only might they be diagnosed with something and, and treated with traditional medicine, but that you're going to talk about what they eat for lunch and what they have for snacks during the day too. Are they surprised by that? Um, initially, when I first started my clinic and I started to insert these questions, yes, there was some surprise, sort of like, why, why do you need to know that? Where's my prescription? Um, to interest in, wow, no one ever asks me that. I'm so glad you asked because I've been struggling with A, B, and C. Um, but then my clinic evolved over time to really become more of a referral center. So individuals now who come in really know that they're coming in to work with me around these specific interventions. But yeah, at the beginning, there was some, there was, there was surprise of, of different kinds. Well, you know, I've been a practicing therapist for, it's been 20 years now. And I hate wow. to say it, 20 years ago, when somebody would come into the office, we had one question on our intake that would say something yeah. like, how's your diet? And almost mm -hmm. always people said, good. And of course, that's a very relative description. And we rarely followed up to talk any more sure. about it. Sometimes yeah. later in therapy, yeah. it would come out or we would have a, an inkling, like you said, when people come in with treats to their appointment or their giant coffee in their hand. And so then if it came up again, we might discuss, okay, there is a link between caffeine and anxiety, mm -hmm. but quite mm -hmm. often people would just say good and we didn't necessarily discuss it again. So I'm fortunate, I'm grateful that we've had people like you come out and help us all learn a lot more about the link between diet and mental health. Well, thank you for saying that, Amy, because to be completely honest, it doesn't change that much in our online medical records, not really that much. So, you know, one of my big missions is really to help other clinicians um, learn a little bit more about how to incorporate this in those questions. And even if they don't do the full sort of nutrition and mental health piece, but at least ask the questions and then maybe set up the appropriate referral and have more, have more uh, individuals of all disciplines trained um, or have some certification in this to be able to offer to their patients. Good, because I know my primary care physician asked that question too. Do you eat a healthy diet? Yes. And then we move on to something else, right? Without, right. without much uh, further discussion. And sort so, of a leading question. Yes. <laughs> leading I, question. I, yeah, I'll have to ask her someday. How many people say no to that? Because I bet not very many, <laughs> not very many people would. One of the things that I loved about your book, This Is Your Brain on Food, is you get down to specific things that we can do to, to change our diet and then the, how those specific things can affect mental health issues like depression, anxiety, even PTSD. How much do you see that nutrition can actually create positive changes in people, would you say, or how often can it create these huge positive changes in people's mental health? To be honest, Amy, the only individuals where it doesn't have an impact are individuals who struggle to change their 
um, their habits. And, and very often in my practice, it's been individuals struggling with orthorexia. So mm-hmm. they may have very rigid rules, even around healthy eating habits. But some of these healthy eating habits may be, let's exclude this entire food group, which may in fact be uh, become so radical for them that they become a little unhealthy. But for the most part, I've ha- I've had good success with people as long as they were patient with the plan and they were consistent with the plan. They really began to notice some changes. Is it a cure all? No, it's not. We're not at a point of this being prescriptive. One should never stop taking their medications or stop doing the very important forms of therapy which go alongside all of that. But Almost everyone can have some benefit, even someone with OCD. I remember um, a patient where she was having granola for breakfast. And I said, oh, great. That's, you know, that's not a bad choice. There's a lot of whole grain in that. And I said, well, do you make it or do you, you know, because I have recipe for healthy granola. And she said, no, I buy this, you know, this healthy brand. But when we actually looked at the food label, it was laced with a lot of honey, honey on its own, a little bit not unhealthy, but there was so much in it that the sugar load in this granola was really not helpful for her. So even tweaks in little things that could be potentially healthy habits that we are trying to do um, can can lead to other things and we, we just need to make those changes. Do you want to get high quality meat delivered straight to your house? Or in my case, a sailboat? Try ButcherBox. It saves me time and money. And if you order right now, Mentally Stronger listeners can get steak, chicken, or salmon free in every single order for an entire year. I love that ButcherBox offers grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, and wild-caught seafood. There are no antibiotics or added hormones. They even offer vegetarian options. ButcherBox lets you decide how often you want deliveries, and you can pick a curated plan, or you could completely customize your box. Sign up at butcherbox.com slash stronger and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer, plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash stronger and use code stronger to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. And the mental health issues that sometimes go with dietary issues, it's kind of a two-way street, right? When you're depressed, it's difficult to then say, I'm going to find the energy to cook. Or when you have a lot of anxiety, maybe same thing. It's difficult to say, I'm going to make that healthy choice. Or for some people to say no to maybe an, an opportunity to go do something where there's lots of unhealthy food choices is tough. How do we do both at the same time? Say, all right, I'm going to battle this, but I'm also going to work on fixing my nutrition I think it starts with where you're at in your health journey. Um, so someone who is so devastatingly anxious or so severely depressed that they can't get out of bed, it might be that a family member gets involved and helps them. It might be that the best we can encourage them to do is take a walk to get the newspaper, take their dog for a walk, walk to the coffee shop just to get some movement in, some sunlight, which actually brings in vitamin D, which helps their mood um, and things like that. But I think the buy-in really comes from the individual who has realized that perhaps medications are just not doing enough for them, or they are adamant that they don't want a medication, they're seeking another solution. Those individuals are motivated to do something different, so they're open to the conversation and really starts there. Because if you came in and said, well, I, I need to be better in two days by eating X, 
that that's not how it works. It's a meltdown and not a sprint. So the buy-in often comes from the individual who wants to make that change. And what are some of the biggest problems you see with the Western diet these days when it comes to our mental health? Um, where do I where do I start? It's <laughs> called the standard the standard American diet, a sad diet for a reason. But in but in reality, we all consume some of it, part of it, a lot of it, uh, all on a spectrum. And that's because it's really very hard to avoid a processed food in our current life and environment. However, it's about those choices that we make. Unfortunately, for the most part, a lot of Americans are eating the processed, ultra-processed foods that are frequently junk foods, or they're eating fast foods, none of which have healthy ingredients in them. Um, then if you go in the fast food direction, you know, French fries are laced with sugar. We don't realize that, but the research and development has shown that to make them hyperpalatable, they actually contain sugar, uh, which is why we always uh, upsize, and when we upsize, we, buy, we eat the whole bag. And then the high fructose corn syrup is in everything. So these are just, it's not that you can't ever have it. It's just that these are not the choices we should be leaning on because they lead to inflammation in the body, the gut, the brain. And these just set up for worsening symptoms of de depression, anxiety, and more. Um, the other one is, you know, people are trying to do the right thing by coming off uh, sodas, but they end up... Um, uh, using drinking diet soda, which is laced with artificial sweetener, and there's a problem there too. So some of those things uh, are, are problematic, and then the wrong types of fats, so the trans fats, the hydrogenated fats, you know, think the shelf-stable baked goods, uh, the ones that come in a box, um, the, you know, shelf-stable uh, breads and other things that uh, some of them, and not necessarily the bread, but the baked goods have a lot of those those fats that are just not healthy for us. The sliced bread often just has um, ingredients that are stabilizers and colorants and dyes that are not the best for us as well. So hearing all of that, then it becomes a question of, so what do I eat? But let's say somebody comes into your office and maybe they're struggling with depression. What kind of uh, nutritional recommendations might you make? Often I start with broad recommendations that in include groups of uh, good foods that they can add in because then they don't feel restricted. So when people hear the word prebiotic, they often think they have to go and buy a pill, that they can get prebiotic fiber, which is great for those gut microbes, great for gut, depends off inflammation from things like garlic leaks, onions, jicama, bananas, oats, things like that. Then I talk to them about uh, fermented foods or probiotic-rich foods, so those plain yogurts, dairy or non-dairy, not the fruited kind because a half a cup of blueberry yogurt can have eight teaspoons of added sugar. So, you know, add in your berries, add in your cinnamon for sweetening, um, and, uh, and and so that's another that's another group. And then fermented foods, which are, you know, almost every culture has a fermented food, kombucha, kefir, um, kimchi, miso, tempeh, all of these. So we can start to eat these. Um, the one, the one caveat here is that you know if you have a gastrointestinal condition like ulcerative colitis, SIBO, uh, Crohn's, you it might have you might have some difficulty with these because the fiber can upset your GI system. So you'd work with your gastroenterologist around that. But otherwise, these are healthy foods. The omega three fats from fatty seafood like salmon. Uh, anchovy sardines or the um or the plant-based sources from chia seeds um walnuts things like that um and then you know spices are a huge uh, complement to our food 
turmeric, saffron, these have a really good amount of evidence regarding mood. Um, and, you know, the right, the right types of oils or the right types of fats, even from things like avocado uh, and extra virgin olive oil are very helpful. So then is the recommendation different if somebody comes in and they say, well, I have anxiety or is it a very similar diet? So with anxiety, one of the things that I find extremely helpful is to especially start with the things that they're eating, which may be driving the anxiety, which they don't realize. One of them is artificial sweeteners. Another, another one of them is the processed, uh, ultra-processed sort of vegetable oils and seed oils that they don't realize they're consuming, even in uh, what, what is labeled as a healthy, natural, even organic uh, processed snack or processed bar. And working my way from there, there are foods that we can add in. In addition with anxiety, I think it's super important to do things like hydrate well because dehydration can lead to a panic attack. I've seen it um, many times over. So those components and also teaching people an exercise. Some form of breathwork exercise can be hugely powerful, but teaching it to them when they're having a panic attack doesn't work. They sort of have to pre- be practicing it with you or on their own the rest of the time so that they can they can lean into that Um when they, you know, when they, when they feel anxious. And I was uh, pleasantly surprised to see that you also talk about specifically about PTSD, that there's certain foods that people can eat that can help with trauma. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, with PTSD, um, it's a complex condition and one that, you know, requires a holistic approach, so therapy, sometimes medications, all of these are important. But things like even having a snack of blueberries on a consistent basis, the anthocyanins reduce inflammation, tapping into extra virgin olive oil and some of those foods, tapping into the B vitamins, which are very important for our brain health, have actually been shown to be potentially helpful. So there are there are ways to um, access or target any of these conditions. We just We just want to do it in a way that um, you know, complements everything else that we, we are working on. And do you start by having people add things in or subtract the things that are most unhealthy? Great question. I usually have them add things in because I find that that giving them one or two tasks at a time is easier. So very often I'll make sure that they feel abundant in terms of what their nutritional psychiatry plate looks like. Um, and then we start to look at, well, you know, that's not the best choice for your oil. That's not the best choice for your beverage and start to take uh, take those away or limit them and things like that. That makes sense because it's easier in some cases to say I'm going to add some blueberries than to completely overhaul and get rid of all the things that I love every day, right? <laughs> Exactly. I do talk to people about, as they go through the process, I do talk to them about kind of restructuring their kitchen. I call it environmental controls, uh, you know, but food controls. So so if if during the pandemic you stocked up in batches of ice cream and cookies, then those are the things we need to start overhauling slowly in the kitchen and replacing them with the clementines and extra dark chocolate and avocados or whatever it might be. And speaking of beverages, what do you recommend that people drink or not drink? So, you know, the obvious ones not to drink with the soda and the diet soda, uh, but sports drinks and um, energy drinks are laced with the wrong types of sugars and wrong types of substances, which get, you know, get people super anxious, for example. 
or just revved up in a lot of sugar. Um, but the ones to lean into are things like water, green tea, um, you know, flavoring the water with berries, citrus, um, things that are just natural and give it a pop. Mint is another great one. Um, I love mint tea for um, when, you know, people are feeling a little foggy in the afternoon and they want to get another cup of coffee. You know, if you have fresh mint or you have a mint tea, it can be very uplifting, as can green tea. So those are the things I'd like people to be leaning into. Uh, and I love my, uh, my my grandmother's recipe for golden chai, which is, you know, you can use the milk of your choice. It's really about the spices and it's very warming. It can be made chilled. Um, you know, it can be a dirty chai if you add coffee. It's, it, 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 it has a lot of variations to it. And how do you feel about coffee? You know, I like coffee. And I feel that it's a healthy substance based on what I've reviewed of the research. It's not for everyone. Um, and it's often the caffeine that gets people in trouble. Coffee on its own has a lot of rich plant polyphenols, which are good for us. And uh, the books that have been written about the, the benefits. But people can be super sensitive to caffeine. And I think that's where we need to be careful. And they... Some some of my patients can't even tolerate half, uh, you know, like a half cup or even a decaf. So for them, that's it's not an option. You know, we just we just need to find other things that they can drink. Um, but in in general, clean coffee, meaning you know, not what my patient did, adding in a ton of unhealthy stuff and a ton of sugar is not the way to go. Black coffee or something with a, a healthier version of a creamer or something to lighten it is is a little bit better than uh, than the way he was having it. That's good news for me who loves black coffee and <laughs> caffeine d doesn't have a huge effect on me. So it's not a problem. So glad to hear you say that. <laughs> what do you say to people who just are like, maybe I just, I can't eat that. Like I know some people are really, um, don't want to eat vegetables. Like they're just not used to it. And the thought yeah. of it just disgusts them. Yeah. I myself and not somebody that eats fish. I just, yeah. I'm not going to do it probably despite it. all of the good things. What do you do when people just have certain food groups yeah. or types of food that they say, you know, I just don't know that I can choke it down. Right. So, so let's take the example of not liking fish, right? So mm -hmm. there are, if you don't like any type of seafood, because there are other seafood besides fish that you could eat um, that actually do contain omegas. But if you really don't want to consume fish, there are, there are plant-based sources. They're less efficient at reaching your brain, but they're still a good sources of the short-chain omega-3s, almonds, walnuts, um, chia seeds, flax seeds, uh, basil seeds, sea algae. And you can actually supplement with the vegan uh, algal oil supplement which will give you some omega-3s, and that's made from algae. So um, that's that's uh, because many people don't like the taste of the omega not, not everyone likes the taste of the omega-3 pulls. Um, and then for someone who doesn't like vegetables, I've got to work with them to slowly convince them over time, but also find ways that they're willing to incorporate it. So can you put spinach and lettuces in a smoothie? You know, can you um, can you do something interesting with the meatballs that you're making? So whatever you, you're making them from, um, whether it be a plant or animal protein, can you add a lot of extra veggies so you're not seeing it? So, you know, cauliflower, rice, uh, chopped carrots, spinach, that can be, you know, blended in and when you, you know, you bake a meatball or you, however you make them, they, they, you are consuming extra vegetables. Um, another easy way is soup. 
which you puree. So you're not thinking about it. You're not seeing chunks of vegetables that you don't want to. And my trick there is to make it creamy with um, nut milks. And so you can have a cream of something soup, whether it's a tomato or asparagus or whatever it is, that's actually bringing in healthy ingredients, but you're still having it be delicious and tasty and you want to consume it. And do you find once people start to make some dietary changes that their taste and their cravings for certain foods changes over time too? It really does. When people, um, I hear this all the time, when people reach that point on their own where they just start to say, give up sugars, and, and you don't have to give up all sugars, this is just an example, cut back on sugar, they really, they notice that their sleep improves, they have fewer cravings, they feeling more alert, um, less tired even. So it's, it's just interesting to to note the behavior with the foods that we eat, something that I call body intelligence, because many of us just skip over that and we're like, I'm exhausted in the afternoon, I always need a third cup of coffee. But actually, it could be what we're eating for lunch and, lunch and breakfast. And what about the social aspect of food? Because for a lot of people, it's going out to eat, it's spending time with family, they have all of these huge events that they go to that revolve mm-hmm. around food. How do you manage that when you decide you're going to change what you're going to eat? Well, I, I believe in uh, the, the 80-20 rule. So if you're going out with friends and family, I'm not saying you, you shouldn't enjoy something that you uh, would be craving or, and, uh, you know, um, the sort of experience socially of having it with your friends or family. That's important too. But then I say, you know, if you've had, if it is an unhealthy meal, then course correct at the next at the next meal. Realize that you know this was a great a great outing. You had so much fun. The socialization is so important. Um, and then make sure that you have those healthier foods the next day. Um, but if it becomes a pattern, that's that's when it becomes problematic. If that's then what you want to do every day, it can be a problem. Um, the other thing is that you know you you work with people to make the healthier choices when they, if you had the steak, you know you can have the sauce on the side. If you have, um, you know, try not to get those cream based soups because what happens is the vegetables are. Uh, not as valuable in them, and there's a ton of added cream. And, and on the one hand, they can be super delicious, but you're not really, it's not the same as having a salad. So, what can you do to make that meal? Um, can you add an extra vegetable somewhere as a side? Can you, uh, you know, can you um, have a share salad with the, with the group that will just bring some extra, you know, better nutrients for you as, as with whatever else you're enjoying? And there's a fair amount of research just that just the act of cooking at home isn't just good for our physical health, but it's good for our mental health, right? A lot of people tend to cut back on substance abuse issues when they cook at home. And a lot of times people say that their mood is better by cooking at home, but a lot of us aren't necessarily uh, good cooks or don't have a good idea of what to cook or how to do it. So how do you get people to start cooking if they aren't comfortable with it? Right. Right. So, you know, it's it's a part of, I myself started cooking later in life uh, because I started, came from a very large South Asian family and all generations cooked. So I would hang around and eat and taste, but I was always in the kitchen. So um, cooking was of interest to me when I had the chance. So I, I share that with people and I say, you know, it's, it, you don't have, there's no perfect, uh, yes, I went to culinary school, but that was later in life and I had to find a place that I could start cooking something. Um, so ask them what they'd like to do if they feel up for it. Sometimes it's just putting together a salad. So buying the ingredients, even if they 
mostly prepared and putting it together, then it can make someone feel an incredible sense of accomplishment. Um, I start with that. If that's something they're willing to do, a smoothie is another one. Pretty easy. Um, putting ingredients together and putting it in a, an instant pot to make a soup. You know, those are, th- these things don't involve that much activity, just measuring and putting the ingredients together. Once I find that people turn the corner when they feel a sense of accomplishment, and if they can, they've learned, say, five dishes that they can rotate during the week and then, you know, have an outing on a weekend and, and then meal prep on another day, they, they kind of find, find a pattern. And, you know, there are others, other people in my practice where maybe it's not, maybe it's the husband that cooks, maybe the adult child cooks it. You know, there are other variations of how people get them in. But I think learning the principles of the, of the healthy eating is what helps them too. And I think it's intimidating sometimes. You open a cookbook and sometimes I don't mm. even know what the ingredients are in the list or if we have yeah. them at my yeah. local store or how that works. But one of the things I really yeah. appreciated about your book is you have recipes in the back and you give okay. uh, you have a, an index that includes sort of like what ingredients, what sorts of things and yeah. how they specifically affect our mental health to break it down and make it easier for us if we just want a quick reference guide. That's ex- exactly it. You know, I, I really struggled with chapter 11 of my book, This Is Your Brain on Food, because uh, as a chef, I, I, I kept thinking I should teach them this and I want, want to share that. But then I realized, you know, I, I took myself back to when I couldn't cook and my experience was hanging around the kitchen with my family. Um, realized it had to be really simple things that people could make and put together easily, but with brain food ingredients. And that was the reason. But then I also sort of walk people through how to set up your kitchen. So, you know, don't, don't splurge on the, the the kind of equipment that, you know, people are going to sell you for a lot of money, but that you don't really need. But just buy the basic things that will get you cooking and be able to have you chop up vegetables or um, slice something or peel something to, to prepare it. Well, that makes sense. And that's, I think, something a lot of people overlook because there are times when I've opened up a cookbook and there's a recipe that calls for using like an appliance and I don't even know what it is, let alone have it. Yeah, right. Correct. And, and you know, that can be a little uh, intimidating for someone because they they may not have the interest in buying it. Why, why buy it and use it once? You know, so. Definitely. Okay. One last question for you. If somebody's listening today and they say, all right, I want to start to pay more attention to what this food is doing to my brain. Do you have one piece of advice of where they could start? Start with something that's bothering you. Maybe it's a bad habit from the pandemic that is left over. Maybe it's an icky feeling you feel in the middle of the morning or just after lunch or at bedtime. What, you know, think about what that emotion is. And I'm reasonably sure each of us has at least one and ask yourself if it could be related to food that you've eaten, a pattern of eating that has changed. Maybe you stopped taking lunch to work and you're eating, you know, you're buying takeout or eating at fast, whatever that is. Usually people can identify something that's bothering them. Sometimes it's poor sleep. And um, I see a lot of that. And, and just exploring that can uncover a habit that they've picked up or, or that they've had for a very long time that they haven't realized. And that's a good place to start. That sounds like a easy place for us to get started. Dr. Uma Naidu, thank you so much for being on Mentally Stronger. Thanks so much, Amy. I really appreciate being here. Welcome to The Therapist Take. It's part of the show where I'll break down Dr. Naidu's mental strength building strategies and share how you can apply them to your own life. 
Here are three of her strategies for improving your brain with the food that you eat. Number one, add healthier foods first. So before you start giving up all the food you're used to eating, Dr. Naidu suggests adding healthy foods into your day. Whether you reach for blueberries or you eat some avocado, you don't have to completely overhaul your entire diet at once. So that might seem like some good news because for now, you don't have to get rid of all the things you usually eat for lunch or you don't have to get rid of all those favorite snacks. Just add in some extra things that are good for you. Dr. Naidu listed lots of them in this episode today, everything from colorful vegetables to fermented foods. But she has tons of resources on her website that can help you make healthier food choices too. I'll link to her website in the show notes. Number two, restructure your kitchen to set yourself up for success. I love that she talked about making some changes to the kitchen environment. If your kitchen's filled with foods that you're trying to avoid, don't keep them nearby. If you need to keep some less healthy food choices in the house, like maybe you have a family member who's not into changing their habits just yet, don't keep the cookies on the counter where you're going to see them all day. And don't put the sugary drinks in the front of the fridge. Just make them a little bit less accessible and make the healthier items like water or walnuts a lot easier to reach for. I once got a tour of Google and they showed me the strategies that they use to encourage their employees to eat healthier. They have a fully stocked kitchen and it's filled with a whole bunch of different kinds of foods and drinks. But over time, they decided to start putting the less healthy options in containers that had frosted glass. And the healthier options were in clear glass containers. They did the same thing with drinks. They had those refrigerators with glass doors. So they put the water on the top shelf and then they frosted the glass in front of all the other shelves so that you wouldn't see the sugary drinks. Then they calculated how many fewer calories their employees were consuming, and they found that just the act of frosting the glass made a phenomenal difference. So while you might not frost the glass in your house, you can set yourself up for success to make healthier choices by making the healthy things easily accessible and in your line of sight and make the less healthy options a little harder to access. And number three, follow the 80-20 rule. I'm glad that Dr. Naidu says it's okay to treat yourself 20% of the time. That feels like a realistic goal. We know that when someone becomes too restrictive with their eating habits, that it has the potential to become an unhealthy obsession for some people. But for most people, it just isn't sustainable. So strive to make about 80% of your choices healthy and let yourself indulge the other 20%. Enjoying the things you love in moderation can be really healthy. So those are three of Dr. Naidu's strategies that I highly recommend. Add healthier foods first, structure your kitchen to set yourself up for success, and follow the 80-20 rule. If you want to learn more of her strategies, pick up a copy of her book, This Is Your Brain on Food. There are chapters devoted to the nutritional changes that can help with specific mental health conditions, and there are also recipes and lots of information about how specific foods affect the brain. If you know someone who could benefit from hearing this message, share this show with them. Simply sharing a link to this episode could help someone feel better and grow stronger. Do you want free access to my online course? It's called 10 Mental Strength Exercises That Will Help You Reach Your Greatest Potential. To get your free pass, all you have to do is leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Then send us a screenshot of your review. 
Our email address is podcast at amymorinlcsw.com. We'll reply with your all-access pass to the course. Thank you for hanging out with me today and for listening to Mentally Stronger. And as always, a big thank you to my show's producer, who eats fish, Nick Valentine. 